Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Karina Vernon, led by Mahmoud Abadme. In this interview, Mahmoud and Karina discuss her book, The Black Prairie Archives and Anthology, and the necessity of Canada's multicultural past to be known. As well, Karina ties her experiences of gathering the anthology's narratives to her own pedagogical practices and the importance of sitting with the uncomfortable, as that is where she believes the real learning occurs. Mahmoud Abadne is pursuing a PhD in English literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. His research centers around trans-Indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is currently teaching at Red Deer Polytechnic. His work has appeared in the Journal of Holy Land and Palestine Studies. Karina Vernon is Associate Professor of English at the University of Toronto Scarborough, where she researches and teaches in the areas of Canadian and Black Canadian literature, Black aesthetics, archives, critical pedagogy, and Black Indigenous solidarities. She is editor of the Black Archives, an anthology published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press in 2020, and a companion volume, Critical Readings in the Black Prairie Archives, which is forthcoming. She is at work on a five-year Shirk-funded project, Black Art and the Aesthetics of Spatial Justice, which seeks to understand how mid-century urban renewal projects that destroyed inner-city Black neighborhoods across North America gave rise to a new Black literary aesthetic. With Winfried Seemerling, University of Waterloo, she is working on a book project on the politics and aesthetics of relation of Black Canadian cultural achievement, including writing, music, film, and visual art. Hi, Karina. Thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mahmoud. How are you these days? How is COVID situation in Toronto? Oh, the COVID situation is way out of control in Toronto. I hate to say it's really bad. It's actually, gosh, you know, this virus is revealing, you know, Dion Brand is the one who said that the coronavirus is like an x-ray that reveals all the systemic inequalities in our, all our social systems. And that is the case in Toronto. It really is an x-ray showing us where the essential workers are, who doesn't have paid sick leave, who continues to have to work outside the home and all of that. And so all of those disparities are right out into the light. And still our government is not willing to move on paid sick leave and, you know, all of this. So it's really frustrating, I have to say. At the beginning of the pandemic, I thought okay, this is a chance for us to see everything and then create a new world on the other side of the pandemic. And um, I still hope that happens, but it is, it is frustrating and infuriating to see the lack of movement that we need to see to save, to save everybody and bring everybody along. I can, I can absolutely relate to that, particularly here in Alberta, where like, you feel the government is doing absolutely nothing. And the opposite, they are doing the worst 
possible thing. And uh, but I'm wondering, how do you think, how is your teaching and meetings and life going on with COVID? Because I know like back in the good old days when you used to see each other face to face, we used just to have like these meetings, one hour meeting and like, how's your life with COVID and teaching and meetings, all of that together? I have a lot of mixed thoughts and mixed feelings about this. It's exasperating to see how, in a way, the university just continues with business as usual, as though we're not in a pandemic, as though our kids aren't at home all the time. The only thing that has stayed normal in our lives is work. You know, the work and the parenting continues, but all the good stuff, you know, not to say that work and parenting isn't good, but all the things that could lighten your soul, you know, like the socializing, the friendship. All of that has disappeared and it's left us with work and Zoom meetings and all of that. And that's been really, really hard. And so it's, it's frustrating how quickly the university moved to normalize everything. And the way that the university has sort of moved around us, right? The university has moved into our homes now. Because when the pandemic hit, I thought, okay, this is it, right? The university is going, going to shut down. It's over. But it's never over. <laughs> the university <laughs> just shifts decamps and becomes part of our own homes and so that's been that's been hard on the other hand I've been amazed about how how it's still possible to create a community in in classrooms there's something about teaching that remains still magical the students come they show up they click on the link they come they do the readings they uh listen to their classmates they challenge their thinking. They grow as intellectuals and as writers. And it blows my mind that students still show up and lift each other up and ask how one another is doing at this time. So that has been magical. So I just, it's so mixed, you know, it's exhausting, but it's still, the teaching part I think has been amazing. And, and that's all credit to the students. What are you teaching this semester? I have been teaching my, the second part of my introduction to Canadian literature. So that's chronologically organized from 1900 to now. So that's my one Canadian literature course. And then what else was I teaching? I forget. Oh, I was teaching for the first time a dedicated undergraduate course uh, dedicated to Black Canadian literature. And I've never taught a course entirely dedicated to Black Canadian writing. And so I did that for the first time this semester. And that was, what a time to be reading Black Canadian literature. Indeed. And which, like, what was this type of courses available to you when you were an undergrad or a grad student or a grad student back in the days? Or and how do you see the progress that academia and particularly literary studies and English departments in general offer courses that focus on writers who are Indigenous, Black, or people, in, people of color in general? Mm, great question. Um, I never read Black Canadian literature as an undergraduate or as a graduate student. Um, I never had a Black professor in all the years that I went to university. I had amazing professors. I studied with Roy Meeke uh, when I was doing my master's degree at Simon Fraser. So I had inspiring, brilliant teachers who did put different books on the syllabus, you know, challenged the canon, um, the Western canon in, in some very significant ways, but that didn't involve necessarily putting black Canadian literature uh, on the syllabus. So that reading I always did on the side. I realized that I had kind of parallel reading list for myself all the time. I read what I needed to read for school. <laughs> and then, <laughs> On the side is when I was reading Black Canadian literature or Indigenous literature. And so things have changed, I think, since I was a student. Now a student going to, I think most universities in Canada have an opportunity to take an Indigenous literature course or a Black Canadian literature course. So that's different. So things have changed, but also a lot has stayed the same. Learning still looks, you know, pretty much like it looked when I was a student undergraduate so many years ago the classroom space still is the same assignments the way students earn grades the hierarchies of the university who's at the front of the room a lot of that still looks 
an awful lot like it did when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, we still have no Black, well, very few Black studies programs in Canada. I think there are three in the entire country. There's no Black studies program at the U University of Toronto. I mean, come on, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, so there's still a long, long way to go. I, I always wonder like about this discrepancy or like this gap between how the institution perceive themselves as like the freedom, the inclusive space, the space of intellectual freedom and the way we as uh, people of color, indigenous black authors see the, inst the institution. We, I think they perceive themselves in a way that is not realistic. And I think they, it takes a lot of time and effort to challenge what the institution or the image of the institution that it constructed around itself and protected. And so I'm just wondering, what, like about the reasons behind this discrepancy between what the institution and how the institution see itself and how do we see the institution? One thing came to light for me after the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, where we saw so many of our social institutions and organizations waking up, you know, waking up to their entrenched anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity. Something that we, those of us, people of color in the institution have known the whole time, right? We have been highly aware of, you know, seeing what, what does the professor, professor, professoriate look like? <laughs> what does the faculty complement look like? Uh, who is the student body? Who is teaching? All of these things. Uh, how is knowledge constructed in the university? What counts as knowledge? What doesn't count as knowledge? All of these things we've, we've seen and we've known for a long, long time. And then after the Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020, we saw the universities realizing, oh, wait a second, how many opportunities do our students have to read Black literature or to access Indigenous knowledges in, these, in, in, our, in our curriculum? And I have, and again, I, I'm going to say I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, it was, it's been a very important moment of, of universities grappling with their deep investments and commitments to, you know, their complicities with colonialism and anti-Blackness. But it's just, it's been, I have to say, it's been, um, it's been frustrating for me as well to know I've been, I've been in these spaces. I've been at U of T, for instance, for more than a decade. And now my inbox is filled with requests to speak about anti-racism and to join this task force and that task force. And I'm like, I've been here for a decade and I've been talking about this stuff and publishing on it and everything for a decade. And now that there's institutional will, it's very belated. I mean, it's good. Finally, there's institutional will to come to terms with these things. But at the same time, it's so belated and that is hard. I, I can relate also to that. It took us like years of struggle and fight with the English department here at the University of Calgary until last few months, they canceled that comprehensive exam and I was like we are in 2021 and we still need to convince the institution that this is not appropriate <laughs> like we should have had this discussion 20 years ago maybe but now we are talking about canceling the comp exam and uh, what they call the hysterical breadth and they call it hysterical narrowness I can't even believe that we had that conversation last month and then they finally agreed to <laughs> I was like Okay, that's, that's a progress, but it's way, way behind. Like we are way behind other institutions, which, yeah. But talking about that and introducing new forms of writing, new Indigenous and Black authors or people of color to the curriculum. So do you believe we can now, we can teach literary texts and conduct the classroom as a form of activism? And how can a classroom classrooms in general engage with colonial and social justice issues? That's a great question. I'll always remember my first day of graduate school uh, at the University of Victoria was actually September 11th, 2001. And uh, so that morning before my very first grad class, I saw what happened on the news. I saw airplanes flying into those twin towers and I was deep, deeply shaken. And then I went to class and no one talked about it. My professors said nothing. 
said nothing. And so I was holding something inside me, but I had to sort of leave it at the door and then walk into the classroom space. And I became very conscious that we leave certain parts of ourselves at the threshold of the classroom and then we walk, walk in and there's a different kind of conversation that takes place. And I just experienced the violence of that, that the classroom, how is the classroom not connected to what happened this morning? To me, that just seemed so, yes, such a violence. In my teaching, I'm very, I try to be anyway, aware of when students walk into the classroom, they bring everything with them, right? We all bring the world with us. We bring our geographies with us and we bring our ancestral histories with us and we bring what we just experienced at work or whatever. We bring all of that into the classroom. And so these days I always sort of carve out a moment at the beginning of the class to check in with students. If something happens, I shift everything off the table and say, we were going to study this today, but I really think we need to talk about this other thing that's just happened in the world. Because really, that's the magic of classrooms. We, even in Zoom, we can, we're together. We can, we can meet each other in this space. We can talk. I really believe that the talking we do in a classroom, the conversation, the work we do, the writing we do, all of it should be in an effort to change our social relationships. I think this is the reason we read literature to transform our inherited ways of being together into a different shape of things. If we can't do that in our own classroom, then how do we begin to do that outside the classroom? I absolutely think the, the classroom has got to be a space of social justice work. I don't know any other way of doing it. I, I love that. And, and when you mentioned what, like 9-11 and you're going to, that, that's so reminiscent of many episodes in my life as a teaching assistant, like you would see everything is going on fire on media. And like, then you go to the classroom. Okay, let's talk about Shakespeare and how great is, shall I compare thee to a summer? You'll be like, what? <laughs> that? And maybe, maybe these are one of the few moments I would agree with our conservative government when they ask humanities to justify themselves. Because if actually that's what you do in a, cl in a classroom, you need to justify because they are cutting all kinds of funds on humanities. And I disagree with that, absolutely. I don't think humanities should be. But when you are performing like in, a, in this way, in a bubble, and when you speak in a certain way that fits certain or is addressed to certain audience, you, the language you, that you use is so complicated that most people wouldn't understand who are not in the field and let alone people in the street. And then you, are, you live in a bubble then you go to the classroom, you feel like, really, like, what's the point? What are we talking about? Why are we talking about that? But I still do believe that the texts that you are teaching, they help you and give you the flexibility to jump outside the classroom. Because I'm pretty sure whatever, if you are teaching texts that are related to the community, whatever happened outside can be talked about in the classroom. But if you are teaching England's history and something happened in Canada, how can you make that connection? And, and that's, that's a question I'm interested to know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm so lucky that I teach Canadian literature, but I think that anybody who teaches literature can do what we're talking about here. If you are teaching literature critically from a anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, anti-racist perspective, then it doesn't, you know, you could be teaching Shakespeare, you can be teaching anything. But if you're, if you're, making sure that you teach from a place where you're challenging systems of power, whatever they are, then your classroom is connected to the world, right? No matter whether you're teaching historical material or contemporary. Yeah, that's the main thing. So even, even on those days where I've walked into a classroom and said, you know, what we were going to do is off the table, really, we're continuing. We're continuing our learning. We haven't really stopped learning. We are just applying, you know, what, what, what we've learned to think through a social situation. If you are teaching romanticism and we have an American Asian hate crimes happening, can you cancel that class today and start teaching a different thing? Because you have a curriculum and you are tied to the subject that you are talking about romantic poets in England. Can you scrap that out and start teaching something else? 
You know what I always tell my students at the beginning of the semester is that the goal in our class isn't coverage of a field. That's never my goal. My goal isn't that I need to cover this field and, and give that to the students. The goal in our class, and I always say we're going to go really slowly. Uh, we might not get to every text that we have on the syllabus because we don't know where our conversation is going to go. So really the goal of the class is to slow right down and stick with things, especially the hard things. I'm always actually really excited when difficult things come up in the classroom and somebody gets mad <laughs> or whatever happens, right? Discomfort. As soon as someone's uncomfortable in the classroom, I know, okay, we are on, we're really on it now. And so let's slow right down and stick with this and work it through and talk about it how, however long it takes. And I, I even assign uh, students assignments, something called a discomfort journal, where students have a chance to write about whatever it is about our conversation in class or about the texts that caused them discomfort. Because I think actually discomfort is where the learning is. It's where we're challenging ourselves. And it, that includes me as, as the teacher. I used to think when I was first hired that my job in the classroom was to know things. Um, but I realized that's not my job at all. My job is to think, right? To, to be with the students when something hard comes up, to think things through with the students and to take them along with that. Show them, show them how one might think through hard things. In an editorial, notes from A Can Lit Killjoy, Laura Moss references your post on Facebook. You asked on your feed in the morning after the shooting at the mosque in Quebec. That's what you asked. Here's the question that you posted. Colleagues in Can Lit, what will you be teaching this week? I'm thinking of scrapping what I had planned and teach Wade Compton's illegalese. To me, this is an activist approach. Being able to scrap your plans like that and include a new material to discuss community concern is part of fighting racism in and outside of academia. So do you remember, like, like this post is like really amazing. And I think uh, it's just influenced me deeply. Uh, do you remember people, uh, people's responses to this post? And why did you, cho did you choose illegalese? I chose, I don't remember so much my student, my colleagues and friends' responses to that post. Um, but I do remember the day, I do remember <clears throat> walking into the classroom and meeting my students. And for some context, I, so I teach at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus, where a significant number of my students are Muslim. And I knew I had to say something. I knew I had to meet them in the space meet them where they are. And then I knew that it would be a violence to them to carry on with business as usual. I knew I couldn't do that to them because that would be pedagogical, right? I would be saying to them, what you're going through doesn't matter in this space. I could never do that to them. So I had to do something else. So I said, let's talk about it. And I think I read Wade Compton's poem because it offers methodologies, I think, for thinking through national community and who is imagined as part of Canada, right, as an imagined community. And it helps us, it offers us ways of thinking through how to address the limits of our imaginings or, or our inherited imaginings of Canada. I think that, I think that poem has that most amazing line. If you arrive in the, in the hold of a rusty imagination, they will find a way to exclude you or make you illegal, right? It's just this incredible, offers us a way of thinking about all these moments that, that keep happening, these moments that keep happening, that shows us, you know, anti-Asian, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, these moments that show us the kind of imaginations that hold us as a collective. I remember that day in the classroom and students crying. My students cried. You know, throughout, throughout that classroom, I kept thinking, do I now say, okay, now it's time to switch back to what we had planned. I kept worrying, I kept feeling that pull. Okay, now we have to switch back. But I saw my students, I saw tears running down my students' cheeks and I thought I cannot, I cannot go back. We have to sit with this. So I did. 
I love that. And 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 describe describing it as violence is I think the it's a really captures the moment because I do feel the violence when I used to go to classrooms and feel like, okay, let's move on with our lives. You, how can you do that? It is, it is absolutely violence. And I feel like we should all be aware of those moments that's happening around us. And I think you put it like in a really interesting way. And I'm really glad that you, you, you mentioned that because I'll, I need to think more about the subject as violence for both the listeners and the speakers because as a teacher in a classroom I keep struggling how can I move forward how can I change the subject oh let's not talk about Asian crime while it's eight women just died and I was in the news and just come to my classroom okay let's move forward I I I feel it's just something cannot be done and if you do it you commit an act of violence to yourself and to students who are affected by that deeply Mm-hmm. I do this thing now. I don't know. I don't know what my students think about it, but I often dedicate my classes. You know, I, I, I say you might have seen this or that on the news and you might be holding it right now. So let's today dedicate this conversation to the women who lost their lives, you know, the shooting that you're talking about. And so as a way of connecting our conversation to what the students are thinking about, a way of honoring Gosh, I, I guess honoring students' feelings and honoring, I, yeah, I just can't let those moments go. I have to say something. I have to do something. And maybe, maybe sometimes it feels to students symbolic, but, but still I think it, it models a way of being for students as, as social subjects in, in, in classroom spaces. And I also feel at some point of, there is a point here that students feel they are part of what's happening and 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 i feel they find that space to talk about it because i feel sometimes you don't know about their mental health or their environment so i feel like talking about that give them that space that they might be missing in their daily lives because they are busy working or doing what university students do and i feel like that's kind of engaging students with community and literature becomes part of the activist movement that aims to enlighten students and engage them with about these social justice issues and colonial issues. You've put it perfectly. Now, I I would like now to move because to the Black Prairie Archives, your recent book. This book fascinates me at multiple levels. And as as we were talking earlier, that it's, I call it a disruptive book because it's really hard for me to sit and read it for long periods of time because it keeps giving me new information and fascinates me. And they'll be like, did that really happen? Where I didn't hear about that before. Why? Then you go outside the text to find more resources about it. Then you go back to the text and the text surprises you again with something that you never even thought about. I felt like so deeply moved by that book. And I felt we actually need this book right now as it brings together 145 years of Black writing on the prairies from, I guess, uh, 1872 to 2019. I'm sure this type of archival work has its own challenges. I, I would like to hear you talking about some of the surprises that you find during your research and the challenges that you faced Uh, Because I know there are lots of permissions and some collections will be owned by private owners or museums. You need to go through all of that. And another part of the question is how such history was buried and how much archival writing was there? Wonderful questions. And thank you so much for sharing with me your experience as a reader. I learned so much more about the project in talking to readers And it sounds like your process of reading the book is a lot like what my process of researching and writing the book was. Um, Now, I'm one of those people that arrived on the prairies as part of what I call that third wave of migration. So that's the point post-1960s wave where my family arrived as part of the point system of immigration. And so my family arrived as, as, as an individual family, not connected to a larger sort of chain of migration as earlier uh, families did. 
And so what that means is that I was, I was isolated on the prairies. I was not connected to a larger community. And so I grew up not knowing about the previous waves of migration or even knowing about the wave of migration that I was a part of. You know, I, I did not have those networks as part of my own social circle growing up. So I grew up isolated and disconnected from all of these histories. And so, Mahmoud, when you say that the book kept surprising you, you know, you're learning this, you're learning that, it was the same for me, researching it, the exact same. And I just kept thinking, like, how did I not know this? How did I not know about the all-Black communities that I grew up just mere hours away from? You know, Amber Valley, Keatstone, Maidstone, they were within two hours drive of where I grew up in central Alberta, but I knew nothing about that history. And that really shows you, I think, I think the prairies has been, the prairies identity has been really effective in suppressing its own others interior to the region, right? So, I mean, there, there have been knowledge keepers and historians and storytellers you know, since the beginning, since the beginning of Black migration to the prairies, Black people have been keeping a record, telling a story, keeping a record. And still, it seems that it, it is just incredibly difficult to pierce that dominant narrative of the prairies, that dominant story by which the prairies has gained its identities as a non-Black space, right? As a kind of Euro-Canadian settler um, space. And all of that has been... When you ask how do those histories go missing and why do they go missing, I think it's all been repressed in the service of producing a dominant, the fantasy of a dominant whiteness on the prairies. I mean, that, that idea of the prairies as a white space is a complete fantasy because when you look at the history, you see it, you know, since the beginning of non-Indigenous contact, it has been a really, really diverse space. So you, you've got to you've got to throw out that narrative and and um and working that through. Was accessing this archive difficult? Like it requires lots of permissions and contacting people because it's not for me. Like and when you, when I do like my research, it's mostly doing critical writing, and I feel like it's just you go online, you find your journal that or an article that you want to talk about that topic, then. It's so easy, but I, I felt like when I was reading the collection and gathering all this, these, I would call artifacts, and talking, you, you, because in the introduction also you talked about knowledge keepers such as Vilma Carter, Cheryl Fogo, and many others. How, how difficult was that? Because again, it's not like me writing a paper that's easy access. I felt like there's so much, it's like you need to go and dig for, these, for this material. It was, it was difficult. And a lot of the reason it was difficult is that I, I never received formal training as an archivist. So I was really learning as I went, probably making a lot of mistakes along the way. I think making a lot of mistakes along the way. So one thing that I, that I did write, I think, is connect with those knowledge keepers early on. I realized right away that there were people like Cheryl Fogo who had been in, in the archives for a long time doing that patient work of, of finding names in the archives and fleshing out their stories and keeping a record and doing all that work. And then there were people in, Ed, in the Edmonton area, Janetta Jamerson and her aunts, her community, doing oral histories, publishing those oral histories. So the work, so much of the work had actually been done in that way. So that, that was part of it. And I was so lucky that they welcomed me and this is a beautiful thing, you know, when I came along and they, they didn't know who I was or what my motivations were, this university person, what are you poking around for? <laughs> what are you doing with my story? How are you going to tell my story? Right. They could have been, they could have responded territorially. They could have shut me out. And they did none of that. They shared with me. They said, oh, you know, so-and-so has this. So you should look over here. You should talk to this person. That was incredibly generous of them. So that, that they were incredibly helpful to me. 
I left the permissions process until the very end, until I felt that I had gathered everything that I wanted to gather. And this was, a, this was one of the mistakes I made. I didn't realize how long it would take to gather, to secure the permissions to publish the material that I'd found. And it took more than a year of dedicated work just to get the permissions together. And so it was only at this stage actually that I realized what a black archive is. I had been working and working for more than a decade on assembling what I thought was a black archive because I thought, oh, the writing that I'm assembling is written by black authors or since I identify as black, that's what makes it you know, a black archive. But I realized, no, it's not that that makes it black. It's the, it's the negotiation that I entered into with each and every person that's published in the book the long conversations about the project that were, were part of the negotiation process for permission, that back and forth. And sometimes that involved having conversations about reciprocity. Okay, you publish this, but then what does it do for our community? What does it do for my family, my community? Where's the reciprocity in this endeavor? And it was having to think through carefully that relationship that made me realize what a Black archive actually is, is a relationship. It's a relationship, not just between me and the authors, but even between the authors themselves in the final archive or book, because so many of the writers wanted to know, well, who's in there? <laughs> Who are you including? And so why would I want to be part of this thing? Give me a sense of the whole thing before I say yes. And so I'm very, very glad, actually. I'm glad that the writers asked me hard questions <laughs> about what am I doing and what's, what's it for and what do I, how does it benefit me? Because that made me learn so much about the ethics of archiving Black cultures. I, I would like, again, to thank you so much for doing that kind of work, because that was absolutely lot, fantastic, and it requires lots of, lots of work. And just to follow up with that point of representation, because it's really fascinating, because you are talking about representing Black community, and th there have been many ways of representations of Blackness in the Black literature. And you mentioned in the introduction that there have never been one single authentic mode of Black prairie being. Still, Blackness is the necessary essentialism that makes the recovery of the archive possible. So I'm wondering how would you reconcile that kind of tension? In a nutshell, I don't reconcile the tension. I, I think the tension just has to be alive in the work. There's no real reconciling it. Earlier, you asked me if there were any surprises as I went digging through the archives. And I think the main surprise or thing that I'm still grappling with is that tension between the fact that I went in search of a Black archive. And what I found actually was a way more complex archive, way more complex. It's Black, but it's also... Black and Indigenous, right? Afro-Indigenous. And, and there are writers in the, in, the, in the book that never identify as Black. And so I did not expect that. And so the name, you know, the Black Prairie Archives is a strategic essentialism. Um, and it kind of names what I was looking for, but what I, was, what I found is in excess of the name. <laughs> you know, I found something way more, way more challenging to our categories of identity to our sense of what Blackness is, to our senses of what the Black experience in Canada or Turtle Island or in the diaspora is. I think the stories collected in the archive challenge all of those essentialisms, right? Even what literature is or what the archive is. I think it puts pressure on all of those ideas. I, I love that. And you also made it clear that this anthology challenges what you called you are talking about the archives, about the prairies and the presence of blackness on the prairies. And then you said, but the archive upon which the meanings of prairie literature have been constructed is far from being historically, culturally or geographically realistic. In fact, 
It is a sanitized and bounded archive, one that mirrors the historical construction of the region itself. I'm just wondering, how do you comment on this idea of sanitized and bounded archive? So after I made my research discovery in the University of Victoria Library, when I found a piece of writing by a pre-1900 Black fur trader, Black paddler. So I found that and I realized, wow, there's a pre-1900 Black presence. And so then I started reading all everything that I could get my hands on about the prairies. I read all the histories that I could find. I borrowed from the library all the anthologies of prairie writing that I could find, thinking, oh, I'm going to find you know, an account. I'm going to find an account in the histories that can put it together, that can make it make sense, right? Like I find, I find this archival piece of writing and then I went in search of the history and I didn't find, I didn't find those historical accounts that could make the black paddlers being on the prairies sort of part of the story. And so I, I realized that those histories, the prairies dominant histories and the prairies even cultural histories are sanitized of their black presence. And that's been, it's been a violent clearing of the prairies with respect to blackness. All of those, all of that black history hasn't made it into the collective history, the collective knowledge of the prairies. Thank you so much for that. And one thing I would like to add here is be careful, Canlit professors, because if you didn't read that book or anybody interested in Canadian history, I think you should grab your copy and read that book because if you are teaching white Canlit, as many do, how can you reconcile the narrative of whiteness with this anthology? How can, how can you reconcile this bounded and sanitized history with this new history? I wouldn't say, sorry, I wouldn't say new, with this easily presented to you now history. Because when you did all that work, now it's, and I think this is one of the objective of the book that you mentioned in the introduction, to make easy access to this archive. For example, if you teach John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister of Canada, as a national hero, this anthology will give you a different idea about uh, how he was complicit in genocide and famine that targeted indigenous communities. So I believe this is one of the biggest contribution of this book is to challenge what we think of Canlit as not just Canlit. It's not just literature, it's history, it's culture. I wonder if you will have anything to add about this subject. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for reading the book that way. That's what I hoped that the book would do. I hoped that it would change the way that Canlit is taught. And I have been incredibly heartened by the ways, the, so now the book's only been out for a year. And I've been really heartened and gratified by the way that I'm hearing my colleagues bringing the book into their teaching. And so the way that they're pairing texts, you know, teaching, you know, maybe one canonical text, but pairing it with something from the Black Prairie Archives to challenge that idea that historical Canlet was white, <laughs> was white, or I, I always teach with Laura Moss and Cynthia Sugar's anthology, Canadian Literature Texts and Contexts, because they did, you know, 10 years ago, they did that incredible work of including Indigenous writers, Asian Canadian writers in, in that archive. And so I, th I see my work as continuing doing that work of diversifying the can lit that then gets taught to the next generation. In, in the introduction also, I, I felt the introduction is just a great framework for us to and researchers and teachers and lecturers to think about the subject, the engagement with history, Canadian history from a perspective that challenges the existing one. And you mentioned in many instances, and this is a really like difficult subject for me, you mentioned in certain places, Black farmers were the first non-Indigenous settlers on Indigenous lands. And you then you continued saying that this is a charged and complex history. 
and I'm, I'm sure this was uh, as a result of the immigration after Oklahoma became a state and Jimmy Crow policies. I'm interested in this charged and complex history, Karina. It is, it is so hard to talk about because the ironies and complexities are so multi-layered and so volatile because what we have happening there is we have people with an ancestral history of slavery, right? That was very near. It was very near, you know, only their fathers and grandfathers, their, you know, their fathers and grandfathers had, ex had directly experienced enslavement and mothers, I should say, and grandmothers. And so those people who came from Oklahoma and other states were freedom seekers. They were in search of their own, their freedom, right? Freedom and freedom from racial violence that was very, very alive and part of their social context. The Ku Klux Klan, for instance, was really active in Oklahoma. So much violence, right? And so some of those people came running with the clothes on their back. They, some had to leave what they had in their houses and farms. They left that behind and they came, they arrived with uh, very little. And then, you know, from one geography of empire to another, that's the problem. From one space of anti-Blackness to a geography of empire. And then they arrive there and they take up land that had just been expropriated from Indigenous people. Treaty 7 had just been inked in, what was it, like 18, in the 1880s, 1890s, right? And so... God, ah. Uh. And it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of, Tiffany Latabo King is a writer and scholar whose work I admire a great deal. And she helps me think this through, the Black Shoals, um, what's it called, the Black Shoals. Oh gosh, I just put away my copy. It's a, it's a book that tries to think of Black and native studies together. And she, she suggests that you, that there are no edges between slavery and colonialism, right? Those are edgeless kind of forces. They're, they, they, they're liquid, they are connected. And that's exactly what we saw on the prairies. You know, the, the coming together of those people is part of this huge story of empire. And I think the thing that has been hardest for me to think through is that Black and Indigenous people made very difficult choices within the context of empire, right? There, there were no easy choices. And there's no innocence in that social relationship that's structured by empire. There's just, I am still, you know, I am still, you can hear it in the way that I'm talking about it. I'm still working through the, that, those complexities and still trying to find the adequate language and the right concepts to help me think through because I think that I inherited a lot of concepts that are not helpful in this conversation whatsoever, like settlers of color. You know, I, I, you hear this and you're just like, that language does not help me think about this <laughs> at all. So I'm still in the process of putting some language aside and reaching for other frames with which to think about really complicated history and a history that's alive still now. I absolutely agree. It is a complex and charged history and it needs lots of unpacking. And I think you are doing, you, you, the archive is doing, a, I would say a great deal of that. You are offering that kind of, you need, like you, you are offering the reader with this kind of way to think about these subjects as a starting point, and then there will be like more research. And I, I do believe that you have a second volume for this archive. Is that that's right? That's right. And um, this is one of the things I'm trying to think further about in the companion volume. Um, so my companion volume, um, I'm working on the revision still, and uh, it's forthcoming. Maybe we should have another interview by then and when, when it's published to talk about that. The, oh, the I second. look forward to that very much. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about four periods of Black immigration to the prairies. 
what are those periods and how the writing shifts over time okay. and what the concerns that the author the authors exposed or talked about during those different four periods so the first period of migration at least as i conceptualize it is the pre-1900 era of fur trade and the beginnings of the ranchers also the sojourners people who moved into and then out of the space and that is largely a period that did not produce a lot of textual documents uh, so this is one of the limits of the archive and that's something that i'm grappling with in the companion volume as well that there's a lot i think there's a lot of cultural production in this period that was non-textual songs prayers dances performance um all of this kind of culture that doesn't get registered at the level of the archive and so i'm starting to think about how do i how do i register this kind of non-textual material in in the anthology i offer a kind of a a monument in the form of a black page as a placeholder for all of that non-textual material so that's the first wave the second wave is the period of the Oklahoma migration 1905 to 1912 or so and that's what we've just been talking about those people who came at the turn of the last century largely because Oklahoma was coming into statehood it had been an Indian territory and as such it had been a space of relative freedom for black people but after statehood it became a really unlivable place and so folks from Oklahoma but also Texas, Kansas and other places moved in a chain of migration to the Canadian prairies that's between 1905 and 1912 and the reason that um, I can name an ending of the migration is because the federal government shut the door officially through an order of council order and council so border closed to black migration and so that period of migration gave rise to a really interesting kind of genre of Black writing. A lot of first-person oral histories, life writing, testimonies of narratives of arrival and then survival on the prairies. A lot of them were, it, it's an interesting genre because in a way the genre was shaped by the people taking, either writing down or recording elders' oral histories. So those, that literature has a particular pattern, a shape to it. First person accounts of, of, as I say, arrival and survival. The third wave, the one that I'm a part of, is roughly between 1960, and it continues until now. People coming from the United States, the Caribbean, other parts of Canada, and Africa to the prairies. And well, then the archive opens right up to all kinds of writing, right? Science fiction, poetry, um, although there was a little bit of poetry written before, but the genres open up to novels, dub poetry, African folklore, and still, you know, still a, a great deal of life writing. And I think throughout the different waves of migration, I think Black Prairie people have responded again and again and again to the erasure of Black history in the prairie social imaginary. And they respond by writing, okay, I'll tell my family's story again. And so we see that even in the third wave. And then finally, another wave of migration that I see is this neoliberal migration that happens through federal immigration programs like the Temporary Foreign Workers Program that recruits workers, especially from Africa, East Africa, and from Central America to come to the prairies to work in the great big agricultural zones, meat processing plants, and so on. And then we also see refugees, uh, asylum seekers, coming across the borders to the prairies, especially after Donald Trump was elected in the United States. And so those folks are transforming the prairies once again with writing in Swahili and other African languages and bringing African folklore, writing in Portuguese, really expanding the soundscape of the prairies. 
One of the first names that are mentioned in your anthology is George Washington Slater. And around the early days of the 20th century, he, like his writings, is just so progressive. And here, for example, he provided us with political and economical theories that are so progressive that we still hear about them today. Even on media and the progressive media platforms, they would be talking about his ideas that he was talking about in the early 20th century. For example, he wrote, Why I Became a Socialist. And he also criticizes the idea of emancipation and how people celebrating emancipation. And I felt like this figure is a hero and he should be mentioned in all textbooks. He's one of the, he's, he's my hero as well. He's a hero to me. I, when I found his writing, I was just over the moon because you're right, it feels so contemporary. It's an analysis that we need today because what he does in his writing is he links race and class, right? He links racial subjuga subjugation to capitalism, right? He, he, do he does that. And he, he says, you know, there's no freedom under, under capitalism. Uh, what we celebrate as freedom now is not freedom because we're still living under capitalism. Uh, and working conditions under capitalism are a lot like enslavement. So um, that, that's an analysis that we need to hear more of today. And another hero of mine, while I was reading the book, Ellis Hooks, there's a story that in high school, there was a performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And one... I mean, I think the role was played by a white student, I think, or a white lady. And I am just, I read the response of the Black families in the community. And I thought that was another, like, heroic, like, response to, and how also the community engaged with cultural and literary productions by that time. This, finding this, and I found Ellis's, Ellis Hook's story on tape in the Provincial Archives of Alberta. And so when I had my headphones on in the archive and I was hearing him tell this story of when his family and his community got together to egg the actors on stage, <laughs> to egg them for mounting Love. this production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And it was really important too because the few historians that had talked about or had written about Black Prairie history, they said really sort of derogatory things about Black Prairie people being, and, and I quote, being passive, being assimilationist in the face of prairie racism. They said, oh, you know, they didn't respond, they didn't fight back like Americans did, like their American kin. And I thought, well, this is not, this isn't true. Like, look at this. They fought back and they, they fought back in the way in the way that they could. I, I thought that story is just amazing. And I, I, I just was thinking, like imagining the scene in my head and how they went to the stage throwing eggs. I think they were, they pressed, the community pressed charged against, charges against them, but I think nothing happened. I think they solved it. I thought that that, that story is just amazing. <laughs> it's just amazing. And thank you for bringing that story to the readers and made it, easily accessed for everyone. I, I will finish with one last question. This question about your, you wrote an article uh, to talk about Suzette Mayer's uh, novel. And it's, uh, the article is uh, titled Outside the Inside. And in that article, you mentioned how the university is an exclusive space and it's available for the few of us. It's not available for everyone. And you mentioned, to explain that argument, you mentioned the story of one of your students who flew from the States for a presentation, and you mentioned that that presentation maybe was one of the most influential presentations that you heard. And I'm wondering about the situation and how do you think of the university as a space that's only available for just the only maybe one percent, no, maybe less, way less than that, of the population? 
when when I had that graduate student in that class and she gave a presentation and I shared this story with her permission, she spoke about things that we don't very often hear about in university spaces. And I realized all at once that there's there's so many ways in which the university is still locking out and gatekeeping particular populations through the t- tuition fee structure, for instance. <laughs> who can afford to go to, you know, who can afford to pay these fees? It's outrageous, right? Um, in some parts of the world, tuition, there is no university tuition, right? Universities open and accessible that way, but that's not the case in North America. And so that means that certain knowledges don't come in. We've just been talking about class. We've just been talking about Reverend Slater's work and making that connection between race and class and life under capitalism. And I mean, the university is a corporate structure and that has big ramifications for knowledge production. Who, Who comes in? What kind of knowledges get recognized as knowledges in the university? You mentioned if you are racialized or indigenous, why would you want to enter the university anyways? And that, that's, I, I felt like towards the end of the article, you, became, you came with this kind of conclusion, if that's the university, within also the context of uh, Suzette Meyer's novel and the adventure of Edith Vane. And then you were like, why would you want to enter the university anyways? Oh, it's a question I struggle with. <laughs> all the time, right? Why would black and indigenous people, especially, you know, the question now, universities are, so many of them in Canada now are on a recruit overdrive, trying to find, you know, trying to recruit black and indigenous scholars and trying to also open up to black and indigenous students. My own university has just released a report that that found that 50% of black students who begin at the University of Toronto don't finish their degrees. Right. So the answer is that half of those black students asked themselves the question, why would I want to be here? And answered for themselves, I don't. I don't. Why would I want to be in a place where essentially you're you're policed? I think I think black and indigenous students experience all kinds of forms of very subtle and sometimes overt policing on campuses. And that that takes a lot of different forms, but it, it, thinking about my own department, thinking about English departments, and a lot of what we do is teach a certain kind of writing, which involves a, a, a policing in, in many ways of mother tongue, right? Policing the kind of language that students bring into the class, the, policing the kind of experience that counts as knowledge in the class and what doesn't get count as knowledge policing how much of yourself you can bring through that threshold what part of your experience will be validated at the door as meaningful as important and what will be rejected so i think for many black and indigenous students as well as black and indigenous professors the university still feels like not an open space despite all the language about inclusive inclusivity diversion decolonization <laughs> indigenization the on the ground experience is is quite quite ironically different karina thank you so much that's so like it's good to hear from you about those subjects and i feel like that is so close to my heart what you say like I feel just I receive it like with open heart and I feel it's just so makes so much sense in my like I can imagine myself in those spaces and how what you say makes a lot of sense to me and I reflect on my experience on campus with along with the words that you were saying thank you so much for being with us here on Tia House and that was an amazing conversation and I, I know we can talk about that forever Thank you so much for being with us today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. You're an incredible reader and listener and thinker. And talking to you makes me learn more as well. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this interview of Karina Vernon by Mahmoud Abadne. I'm Ryan Stern, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Abavne, Paul Minier, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Shu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, and Shazia Hafiz Ramji. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.